Listener Production. Shares. Market. The S&P. The ISX. Stocks. This is the Motley Fool Money Mailbag. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our very special mailbag edition. That's right. Even in 2022, it's just as special as it's always been. And that's in no small part because I'm joined by the very, very special Andrew Page from strawman.com. G'day, mate. How are you going? I do very well, thank you. I'm Scott Phillips from The Motley Fool. For those who don't know our voices yet, maybe we've picked up a couple of listeners over the break. Oh, mate, thank you for uh, for doing all of these podcasts right through the Christmas New Year period. Uh, we had sure. to pre-record a lot of them because uh, our audio guys were taking a well-deserved break. Uh, and while a lot of podcasts are having a month off, we went right through because we were trying to look after our listeners. And we hope our listeners, we hope you enjoy it. Uh, we hope you've valued, uh, we've got value from it and uh, we kept you company while others were off. I'm not throwing shade at anyone, by the way, just saying, hey, we, you know, we want to try and do the right thing. Oh, let's, be on, let's, let, let's be honest, mate. We, just, we like the sound of our own voice. So even if we were recording it, <laughs> <laughs> and then throwing the file away. We'd, we'd probably record something anyway, right? Can I say that is absolutely true? Because we probably wouldn't have done a whole lot of pre-recording, which did impinge on your time. So I just <laughs> want, to say, want to say thank you for, for spending a bit of extra time with me in early December uh, and Pleasure, December mate. to try and get this stuff recorded. Always mate, um, good fun. It's, it's, it is good fun. That's what, kind of why we do it, right? Let's be honest. And because we like the sound of our own voices. Um, <laughs> actually... <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, let's just let's just say we probably wouldn't stop if uh, if if the guys at uh, Alyssa said no, nah, no more guys. We're like, oh, let's just keep doing it anyway. So, do it anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, um, got our first message from Ian, mate, and um, I know you actually squirm a little bit when we get some positive feedback, but I'm going to go with it anyway because Ian says, okay. "Hi, Scott and Andrew. Congratulations on the podcast and on striking the fantastic balance of being both informative and entertaining." Thank you, Ian. He says, for someone who is in the UK, although has a daughter in Australia, your podcast is still highly informative. I'm in my mid-50s and planning on retiring in the next five years. I enjoy my job, but I do have other things I wish to do after 60. My pension is a hybrid of defined benefit, half your luck, and defined contribution, the latter largely invested in UK and global funds. On retirement, when I can access those funds, I want to invest in individual shares and probably one to two ETFs. I've started investing now with non-pension savings and have jumped in with about 300 bucks in each of 30 companies. Based on my general knowledge of domestic companies and more specialist technical knowledge of biotech and renewables. Interesting. I signed up with the Stock Advisor in the UK and also came across your podcast by enormous luck. I'm a big fan of learning, he says, and failing by doing. I like that. Mm-hmm. Firstly, he says, I wanted to invest for real in individual shares by having skin in the game. But I also wanted to ask, what are the benefits of virtual trading accounts? EG is offered by some brokers and I believe Strawman. Question yeah, mark. you can paper trade the market on Strawman. Also, I've been putting about half of my investments into blue chip companies where really my comparison is dividend yield to cash and bond returns and half into medium, small and micro companies where my comparison is the FTSE, the FTSE or the S&P indices. Secondly, he said, is there an easy way to make comparisons of the portfolio and sub-portfolio's performance to interest rates and indices, especially as I now make regular additional monthly investments when indices will also be changing? Is there a tool that will easily do this or is it a task for Excel? He's got one more comment after this, but we'll start with those, mate. So first one's first. What are the benefits of virtual trading accounts? So it, it gives you a bit of practice and it's entirely risk-free. So... Um, there's that. Um, now, as someone who provides a service that allows you, as I said before, you can create a free <laughs> strawman account and paper yeah. trade. We'll give you $100,000 of, of play money and um, we we'll work on, on closing straw dollars and, and on closing prices. So it's not a perfect <laughs> analogy, but it's much more accurate than the ASX share market game. Mm, we factor mm. in dividends. We benchmark it to the ASX 300. Mm. Um, and you can compete against other people, you know. So it's all a lot of fun. And, and I think it's a really great way to sort of, to gain a bit of experience. 
But at the same time, I, it's, I, I do need to acknowledge the following, and that is it's kind of like playing poker without real money. <laughs> it's different. Yep, yep, it's yep, just yep. different. You will be much more rational. Um, you'll be a better investor with play money than you will be with real money. And it's just one of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, why is that? Well, there's a whole bunch of behavioural reasons for it. But we, we get emotion mm. gets to us much more when there's yes, real yeah, cash yeah. on the line. Yeah. So there is really, I, as well as my, I will advocate to anyone, hey, get on to straw man, paper trade mm-hmm, the market, mm-hmm, get a bit of mm-hmm. experience, see what other people are doing, et cetera, et yep. cetera. Yep. But there is no, so I, at the same time, it's only right for me to acknowledge there's no such thing as, as real world experience. Yeah. Um, sometimes you can have a really wonderful, so sometimes you can get onto a, a play money account <laughs> and mm. then you look back and go, wow, I just made a squillion dollars in the last six months screw this, and then you go all in on the market just at the worst possible time or, you know. Mm-hmm. It, the hard thing about the market, whether it be play money or real money, is that in the short term, it's extraordinarily difficult to differentiate between luck and skill. Mm. So, you know, Warren Buffett could, and you could have a, a yeah, stock tipping competition right. and you could thrash right. him over the next that's week right. or two. You might even thrash him over the next year or two. Mm. But I know who I would say was a better investor. No, this is no criticism oh, to, oh, to, oh, to oh, me, listeners me, out yeah, there. Fair, fair. You know, but, 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 but you know, he's, he's probably a better investor. And that's just <laughs> how it goes. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, yeah, not definitely, but probably. Well, it's just, so you really need to sort of see someone operate through a, through <laughs> through a full market cycle before you yeah. even get a little bit of a hint of that kind of stuff. So mm. anyway, it's a, a bit of a long rant, but yeah, absolutely, get on there, have a little bit of a play. I think I think it's really a really useful way to get experience, particularly mm. of mm. things like oh, what's a limit order and how does this work, and you know, not just stock picking, but also managing a portfolio as mm. well. Like how should I carve that up? How should I balance it? You know, there's a cash drag effect. So if you have cash sitting in your play money account. That's getting a zero percent return. That's going to affect your overage. It, it's a really, really great way to get get that experience totally risk free. Mm-hmm. But um, don't don't play in the sandpit forever. Eventually, you're going to have to put some real money down. <laughs> it's a really good point, mate. I love the what what I like about the the stuff you guys are doing at Strawman is the opportunity for people to kind of think through some of the early things about investing. So. You know, if I if I said here's hundred grand, go and buy some shares. You're like, oh, how many do I buy? Where do I put it? And w- right. what companies? And and so, the process of doing that kind of helps you confront those first X number of you know X percent worth of investing kind of questions and kind of get yeah. you set up right. By the time you've said, okay, well, I think I want ten companies with oh, and then you see one drop by fifty percent. Oh, that feels painful. Maybe I want to maybe about twenty. Or maybe I started with fifty. Well, okay, maybe I want twenty now. Whatever the right numbers are. Um, you get a chance to do all that stuff. I think that's really, really valid. What I, what I also like about the way you talk about that is, um, I'll put a slightly different spin on it. It's just that, you know, and this is by the way, real money as well. Over the last 18 months, anyone who started investing in March, April, May of 2020 has just, they are superheroes in their own minds and everyone else's mind. Look how much money I made investing. I, I put some money that's in the market easy. in April 2020 and now I've, I've doubled it and I'm a genius. Um, or conversely, you put it in February, you got to March and April and went, oh man, this sucks. I lost 38% of my money. Yeah, the whole this, thing's this a casino right? and it's rigged. Yeah. And so I think that's, and that, that, that to me, and there's no solution to it. And it's, by the way, it's not, even, it's not even a, a play money problem because you can do the same with the actual cash. Mm. Um, but to your point about not being, not being a, 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 you know, a substitute for real money, that's absolutely true. But also to, even if you're going to do it for the first X period of time before you put money in the market, don't look at that performance and assume that's the future. You know, if you've done really well or done really badly, chances are, you know, mean reversion is a thing. We kind of, everything gets back to the average over time. Um, 
if you've done really well in the first 12 months of paper trading, don't decide you're a genius and you should be able to borrow money and then day trade it. And if you do it really badly, don't assume that investing sucks and you can't possibly make any money doing it. Um, that's it. That's not a play money thing. That's a, that's a first 12 months of anything thing. Yeah. Um, but I just, I just want to raise that point because it's a great way to get your feet wet a little bit. Uh, but don't be put off if it goes badly. Don't think you're a genius if it goes well. Because, um, uh, you, you again, you could have done it with the same with real money. But either way, just remember that that you know it's it's not going to be indicative of the rest of your investing career, which whatever happens in the first 12, 18, 24 months. And we've said this last week or whenever week it was, because we've yeah. been recording a few of these, so maybe oh, we'll you be told me to give away the secrets. You give away the secrets. Go. On. Well, the, the 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 really hard, the the difficult truth to to sort of swallow here mm-hmm. is that even if you are employing a very sensible, successful approach, you're still going to suffer through very long periods of underperformance. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And even if you pick, like, the world's best stock, it's every chance that it could drop 30% and sit there for the next two years. Like, it just that just happens, and there's, like, 400 million examples that we could point to because yep. of that. And, that. and that is what makes it it's so diabolically difficult. Yeah. So that the main thing is, is to, A, start is to B, persist, mm. and C, is to continually learn. I don't care if you've been doing it for 50 years. I learn something yeah. all the time. And I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that I'm a much better investor today than I was mm-hmm. in 2016. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure mm-hmm. in 2026, I'll be a much better investor then than I am. So it's, it's a journey and it never, it yeah. never kind of ends. But to start and to, and to uh, be consistent and to stick mm-hmm. with it, they're the really big things, mm-hmm. I think. Um, and then, and, and you'll just you'll just figure out so much along the way, and you'll get better and better and better and better at it. Just don't yep. don't throw your arms up in despair when you make a mistake because you will. I mean, Buffett makes yeah. mistakes all the yeah, time because it's yep. going to happen. Yep. We we're very fond of saying if you do, you know, if you're good at this, you get it right six out of ten times. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though even though the six that you get right won't go won't go right immediately. So just bear all of. I think going in with eyes wide open is just super, impo- yep. super Love important. Super important. Love it. Um, one thing I will say too, and just just for the sake of it, and this is not this is I hope this doesn't sound critical. Um, you talk about having te- technical specialist knowledge in biotech and renewables, and I think that is super super useful. Yeah. But what I will also say is that there is a big gap potentially between technical expertise and being able to invest well, right? And the reason I say that is because it's possible to have really good insight into a an industry, but unless you overlay the value of a company, the financial circumstances of a business. Um, you know, there, there are plenty of people who have, I mean, people start companies in biotechnology to try and cure cancer, right? Which I love the hell out of. Mm. Most of them, even though they have that, like they're literally so confident and so technically sophisticated and proficient, they start a biotech company to cure cancer. And almost all those will go broke or will continually bleed cash for decades. And I, I guess I just make that point, mate, not to, again, if you have that knowledge and you've got the investment now, by all means, go for it. I just, I think it's, I think it can be a little bit, um, a little bit risky across the spectrum of people who say, I know this industry, therefore I'm going to buy shares in this industry. Um, it might give you an advantage, by the way, in working out which company is which, but if the people who have started this business with full expectation that they can commercialise this drug, can't, because <laughs> they just, just doesn't work out for whatever reason. Um, just be careful. And the reason I say that is because expertise can give us false knowledge sometimes or false confidence. And just make sure that it doesn't make you overconfident, leads you down the wrong path. I'm not saying it will. Maybe you'll do a fantastic job of it. Um, I hope that every biotech and renewable company is successful because we live in a much better world if that was true. Uh, it's just a really high-risk area. And and even the experts, even those people who start those businesses don't always get them right. So um, it just, it's, a, it's a riskier place to, to play. 
I, I, it's a good point, mate, and, and one worth making. That being said, I, I mm. do think it is it is great to invest in areas that you do have a bit of added insight to. Absolutely, um, I agree. Yep. So, because as someone who sort of look, as someone who isn't a specialist in in very technical cancer therapies, mm. <laughs> you know, when I'm reading announcements from a company, yeah, I might yeah. be okay at reading the balance sheet and all of this <laughs> kind of true. stuff, but That's it's kind true. of like it all sounds impressive and yeah. good, but it, but but. But someone like Ian will have a, have a wonderful ability to really understand what's being said and mm-hmm. then weigh up the validity. You're right. It's a separate skill set to sort yes. of do that yeah. and then go to whether the shares are good value and what the risk is. Again, a different skill set. Yep. But I think people investing in industries where they have uh, a lot of insight is a bit of an advantage. And not this is not the straw man promotion hour, I promise you that. But, I mean, <laughs> that's a big part of what we do. We've got, we've got anaesthetists. We've got, you know, we've got mm-hmm. engineers. We've got people who have worked in, in retail. It's just totally. it's a wonderful brains trust that can give you some insight in not that it's going to make you a great stock picker, but just to understand mm. what this business actually does, the industry that it plays in. Yep. And 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 I think it can give you an edge. Just just remember that as as you're saying, it's not the beginning and the end. I think, which I Ian's, think it's, Ian's yeah, not saying. Yes. Yeah. It's, inf- it's an informational edge, which is better than most people who've investing in those companies. I think that's absolutely right. Yep. Um uh, I, again, just just for the sake of it, you know, the long-term capital management, the hedge fund that went broke with twelve Nobel laureates doing the work. Um, information is, is beneficial and it does give you an edge. It's not it's not only or enough necessarily. Yes. So be careful, yeah. uh, mate. The he asked a question about competing indices. Um, I'll, I'll have a first up this one because I you, know, you jump on the first one first. Um, and it's really hard. <laughs> so um, I mean, look. I, I, so I am a fan of being roughly right rather than precisely wrong, as I've said before, and. I'm going to guess probably you may have some technical background. Um, maybe you're a scientist or, or a researcher or something else. And I absolutely understand the kind of the, the instinctive desire to be able to track record, you know, kind of keep the keep the information, work out the answers. I, I absolutely get that sense. I, I've come from not a, a research background at all, but as I said before, I used to calculate 20, you know, 60 ratios from five years worth of financial data that I typed manually into Excel. So I absolutely feel the desire to do that. Um, it, it, is it possible? Yes. Um, you can use the time-weighted rate of return type calculations or, or the IRR function, internal rate of return. I think it's XIRR actually on Excel, um, which is, if you don't understand what that means, don't worry about it. But if you're someone who likes Excel and likes formulas, you might know that. Uh, so yeah, XIRR. You can do it. You can add money to it. You can put in uh, levels of the in- each index uh, as you go and compare those side by side. So yeah, look, it, it's absolutely possible. Um, there are software packages out there that do that. We've talked about ShareSite before. It costs a few hundred dollars a year, which is not cheap. I use it. I like it. I wouldn't be without it, but it's not a small amount of money. So you just need to be careful. Make sure you actually want to spend that cash because obviously once you walk away from that, you, you can take the record with you, but you can't lose access to it. So just, just you know, enter slowly. Um, but no, mate, there's no, there's no simple, easy way. You can get normally um, absolute return, which includes dividends. Uh, indices from around the place. The Australian one comes from the ASX. You can get, I'm pretty sure the US one, probably around Yahoo Finance. I think they have it already. Uh, but you can get them there around. Uh, so there, there are ways to absolutely create it and do it. Uh, I would probably just go back with the roughly right thing of, you know, um, if you're earning meaningful amounts of money, I guess maybe it matters. Uh, but I, I would probably just pick some pick some times and try to track the individual performances, uh, maybe at a, at a company level or an average level. Um, in fact, at Motley Fool Share Advisor, we actually just track the average return of each stock compared to the average return of the all odds. We don't try money weight or time weight. We don't do a portfolio calculation in any way, shape or form. We just say, well, I bought you, we recommended this company today. 
at this point, the share price of the dollar and the oil was at 7,428 points uh, in a year's time. What's that company now worth? What's the what's the all odds now worth? Are we are we ahead or behind? That's a really simple way. It, it feels too simple. It maybe it is on some levels, but it's pretty effective. Um, so that, that might be one option to go with as well. You've got any thoughts, Ram? Um, yeah. So the, the, there are there's many ways to skin this particular yeah. cat, and there's pros. I don't want to get down the rabbit hole here, but there's yeah. pros and cons with each. Some people will argue that it needs to be money weighted. Others that it needs to be time weighted. Mm. And, they're, they're, and there's there's different strengths and weaknesses. And it's a whole two hour podcast just diving into what those mm. mean. But mm. yeah, I'm I'm with you. I don't I don't tend to overthink it. I do use share site as well. I've got to give my regular plug. If you go to strawman.com <laughs> forward slash blog, you'll oh, find dear. you'll find the third article there is uh, you get you get a discount code if you sign up through us. We we get we get a benefit for that. So full mm. disclosure. Mm. But if you're going to do it anyway, um, so you yeah, see this the straw man promotion now, yeah? It kind of, it's kind of really going that <laughs> way, isn't it? Um, but yeah, I, honestly, I, I just think it, it, if you value that a lot, then mm-hmm. yeah, it's probably worth the money. I, I think I use it just because it just saves me a bunch of grief at tax time. <laughs> yeah, same. Because uh, filling out a spreadsheet and just keeping on uh, top of it is a real nightmare. And if I can yeah, get a tax yeah. deductible way of you know twenty five <laughs> bucks a month, I'm just going to do it right. Um, but that's but, but at the same time, I would never I would never urge anyone mm-hmm. that you have to do that. You absolutely don't. You absolutely don't. And and uh, yeah, uh, there's nothing wrong with just being generally right. At the end yeah. of the day, I've actually as I've gotten along, I I mean it's important to have a sense of whether you're beating the market longer term because you kind of think, well, I'm wasting a lot of time and effort if I'm not. Mm-hmm. I could just buy an ETF and be done with it and guarantee myself the average. Yeah. Um, so it's, you know, unless you get some intrinsic pleasure out of the process itself, it kind right. of needs, it <laughs> needs, you need to be doing that, that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but you, you don't, you don't have to be too hyper accurate with that as you, as to your point. Mm-hmm. I think that's, I think that's probably just my, my general approach. But yeah, I mean, straw man, uh, straw man. So straw man's great. Shea Sutt's also great. I'm a big fan. Uh, finally, <laughs> He says, a really big thanks for all your comments about volatility. I've seen wide swings in individual shares, including the blue chips, of over 20% in the first couple of weeks. One company, he talks about a company called Velocis, which makes alternative aviation fuel from waste, which is pretty cool, went up 150% in two weeks and has gone down down to about 20% at the time of writing. Your podcast prepared me for this and has helped me develop a mindset that expects such volatility and I'm sure a lot more in the future. Full on from Ian. Ian, thank you, mate. Really, really great questions and, and appreciate the kind words. Mate Rich says, Hi, Scott and Ram. I'm new to investing and I'm a recent member of Extreme Opportunities and Share Advisor. Thank you, mate. I've listened to all your Motley Fool podcasts going back 12 months. I love the content, banner, and repetitive themes. I think he means. I think he. I think he means regular themes, so repetitive true. themes. Maybe he doesn't. <laughs> no, it's true. That are discussed to give investors the best possible chance to succeed. My question is as follows: You've got two hundred grand and invested in a balanced portfolio of broad-based ETFs and shares, based on multiple recommendations. You intend on adding about twenty grand a year to the portfolio, uh, to existing positions and new recommendations. If I was to liquidate the whole portfolio in five years from now. How likely am I to have beaten the market in your humble opinion? Ultimately, I would like to minimise cash for a house deposit, but cannot under any circumstances bring myself to have it sitting in a bank account doing nothing. I think I know what your answer will be in terms of the long-term nature of investing and the compounding effects of the share market. I think he does too. Volatility is likely to have a greater effect on my portfolio in the short term. Whether that's positive or negative is blind luck, of course, says Rich. And there's a chance that in four and a half years' time, a seismic global event could halve the value of my portfolio. He's exactly right. Having said all that, something inside me says you need to take the risk and having a timeline in order to liquidate everything is adding to the, that risk profile, of course, but I'll give myself the best chance to do okay with sensible picks and overall balance and weightings. Have I made a horrible error 
or can you see any glimmer of sensibility in my situation? Please don't shatter the illusion, he says, <laughs> and with a smile. Thanks for all your hard work. And Scott, you'll be happy to know I'm also enjoying your new podcast, The Good Oil. Thank you, Rich. Full on legends. And that's from Rich, as I said. Mate, it's a good question, isn't it? Mm. Um, I, Rich has listened long enough to pretty much already know our answers. I think he's, he's pretty much just gone, I know you're going to say this. I know I should do this. I know I should think about that. Um, I, Rich, I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have half a suspicion with an absolute uh, tongue stuck feeling in my cheek that you just want to say, yes, it's okay, so you can go and do what you're already going to do anyway. Mm. Uh, or maybe not, or maybe not. But the fact that you don't have to shatter your illusion suggests that uh, you, have, you have a bit riding on this one. Uh, I'm going to quickly just say it before I jump, let Ram jump in. Here's here's the bit, Rich, that I, I want you to just reflect on for me. You say, here's the here's the quote. Having said all that, something inside me says you need to take the risk. I don't think that's a bad thing, but I also think that might be your own personality talking to you via us, which is that that instinctive kind of need to take the risk might be about your personality more than maybe about the investing element itself. Because remember that the risk is actually the risk that 100 grand turns into 60 grand on the day you want to sell those shares or 200 grand, which would be spectacular or somewhere in between and uh, need to take the risk. You actually don't need to take the risk. You can choose to take the risk. You can want to take the risk. You can feel the risk is worth taking, but I, again, I, just, I want you to reflect on the fact when you say, I think I need to take the risk, you're either personalizing that to make it sound positive or maybe it's just in your nature to want to be, be a bit more of a risk taker. And that's, none of that's bad, but you don't need to take the risk. That being said, Ram, uh, and we can't give rich personal advice, of course, as always. But uh, five years, two hundred grand. Do you do you do you risk it in the market? Do you risk some of it in the market? Do you risk none of it in the market? No, How do you think about sen- that? It's perfectly perfectly sensible. It's a long enough time frame to to help you ride out the, uh, a lot of expected volatility. Yep. There are abs- if you go back, I've done the exercise before. Other many others have. If you go back to the dawn of time and the U.S. market <laughs> or our market, there's. Yep. There's certainly periods where the market is down over a five-year stretch. Mm-hmm. Throw in dividends, and they're kind of as rare as hen's teeth. They don't. They they there are examples, but they are they're statistically unlikely. And in fact, on the Aussie market, when you get to a ten-year stretch, there's no period where you would have lost money, even if you even if you pick the worst possible kind of starting yep. point. Yeah. Um, so I think it's I think it's very very sensible. The fact that we're adding twenty k a year to that two hundred grand adds a dollar cost averaging component. So even if the market you put in two hundred grand and it falls from here, you'll be dollar cost averaging, and that money will be getting in at lower prices. So it's I mean you can't. A friend of mine used to say, if you want to guarantee, buy a toaster, right? Because you, you, there's no guarantees in investing, and so I don't want to suggest to you that uh, it's 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 there's nothing that could go wrong because we could have the next biggest great depression around the corner, and the market could be exactly. down thirty percent in five years. So absolutely, that could happen but it is statistically unlikely and i think it's a very sensible approach we said this in a in a recent podcast or potentially a future podcast that hasn't yet been released yet (laughs) is that the the key thing here is is depending on how hard that five-year time frame is is it if it is i must liquidate in exactly five years time that is a very different question is like about five years time so that you know if if things aren't great at that point you've still got the capacity just to sort of perhaps continue Mm -hmm. along with that strategy for a year or two if if need be then that's then that it's i think it's a no-brainer to what to what you're suggesting um but if it is no i am you know on the 16th of december Mm -hmm. uh 2026 i am liquidated yeah you know well that's That that puts you in a in a more precarious situation, and it means that particularly as you start to get closer to that day, once you're a year or so out, it just mm-hmm. as you say a, 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 a badly timed bear market or something at that point could really make things much more difficult for you. So, 
couple of things to think about. I don't think from what you've written there that is the case. So if it's about five years and it's a big diversified portfolio of quality stocks and ETFs yeah. and a dollar cost average, it just it just seems ridiculously sensible to me. And I'm I'm not going to suggest for a second that it's it's not worth doing. Um, I agree with you. I'm going to be a little less absolute just because I probably feel the need to. Um, I think absolute no-brainer is probably a little bit more aggressive than I would the phrase I would use um, because there are circumstances in which you might not have the money. Is, is there a risk worth taking? Probably yes. So I'm, I'm, in, I'm in the same camp as you, Ram. I just probably would, would maybe I feel the, um, the the pressure of being a financial advisor and having to having it's, to be accountable. It, for balance is always but, good. Yeah. Totally. Well, it's, it's, it's just so. His, his, I had Warren Buffett's um, Berkshire Hathaway annual letter open. Uh, we're going to, I'll go about with it in terms of Ian's question, but we kind of moved on from that, which was fine and didn't need to. But I just want to uh, Buffett puts every every year from sixty five through to twenty twenty on the most recent one, the per share increase in Berkshire's market value or decrease, and the uh, S and P five hundred change, including dividends. And in nineteen seventy three, the S and P fell fifteen percent. The following year, it fell another twenty six percent. In two thousand and two thousand and one. No, 2000, yeah, the SP fell 9.1%, then 11.1% next year, then 22.1% the year after that. In 2009, no, 2008, the market fell 37%. And so, you know, it's just worth, and by the way, that 37%, the three years prior were 4.9, 15.8, and 5.5. So at the, at, the, at the end of 2008, the market had wiped off more than three, in fact, almost four full years worth of gains. If you'd have been unlucky enough to be investing that money at the end of 20, 2004 and, and then took it out at the end of 2008, you would have had less money than you put in even after those four years. Why do I say that? Not because I think it's a bad idea because, as Rams already said, it's important to recognise it's possible and there are, there, are, there are circumstances where there have been big gains. Now, the year before that was up by whatever it was, 28%. So, again, when, when did you put the money in? How much did you have? Those are compound numbers, of course. So, 5.5% in the fourth year is not 5.5% of what you put in, but it's you know, of the higher value that have been compounding away already. So they're just worth thinking about. I completely agree with Ram's point, which is very simply, if you don't have an absolute drop dead date, then knock yourself out. Mm. Um, I would add one thing, mate, to your comment, which is just, you're going to at some point say, I'm ready to buy a house. And then you're going to look to buy the house and then you're going to pick a price you're prepared to pay. And then you're going to have to settle on a given date. And so at some point on that journey, I wouldn't also live to the fifth year and then sell the shares on the day you're going to settle. So oh, if, no. I, if I knew yeah. I was going to, if I knew I was going yeah. to buy a house and I had a sixty-day, thirty-day, ninety-day settlement, then I would sell a couple of months before that, knowing the exact money I had and giving up those potential three, four, or five months worth of gains, just because at some point you have to put the line in the sand and say, right, yes. my two hundred grand I put in plus the money I added, that's now worth. Let's hope it's three hundred and fifty grand between the two hundred grand plus additions. Um, great, I'm going to sell that at this point. Take my three fifty out of the market. And then I'm going to go and buy the house. I wouldn't say, "Oh, 350 now, great! I can afford to buy the house." Because again, you just you, you run yourself in a settlement risk. So just if just I, have a think about that. If I knew that there was a big expenditure in yep. my future in the next 12 months, I'd I'd sell the shares for that today. Yes, yes right exactly. now, right now. Yep. yep. Just because it means that I, it's guaranteed to be there when I need it to be. I probably kick myself, you know, think, oh, I could have <laughs> stuck in, and you know, I missed yeah, out on ten yeah. percent, or maybe I was happy, but I just the certainty counts for a lot. So yeah, as much as I'm an advocate for long-term investing, like really, even eighteen months, if I knew definitely yeah. I'm buying a house in eighteen months, I'd probably take a big chunk out right now, just just yeah. for the safety. I like it. Mate, let's move on to Churo, who says, Hi, Scott Andrew. Big thanks to... Oh, 
God. Andrew, opening my eyes about the importance of blockchain technology. Here we go. Uh, Here we go. Excellent. (laughs) (laughs) It is my understanding, he says, that crypto is not the same as blockchain technology. Cryptocurrency is just one application of blockchain technology. Correct. Then... I fail to understand. Oh, that's in there. You're making friends with you, Kinshiro. Then I fail to understand Andrew's <laughs> thesis. Blockchain technology is revolutionary. It has applications beyond our imagination. Therefore, I invest in cryptocurrency. Am I missing something? Can you explain better, Andrew? Scott, you've remained conveniently silent about all this. Jokes. Okay, he's already, he's already picked me. And I would love to hear your thoughts too. <laughs> he already knew I was going to interject with that, with the occasional sl- uh, <laughs> bit of slander, which I've done. Mate, it's a really good question, right? So Great crypto, question. and I'm, I'm actually completely in Shiro's um, uh, camp for what it's worth. Blockchain mm. is a thing and it's a really cool thing. Mm. The link between and so therefore dot 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 that everyone is making about whatever coin, whatever currency, whatever. And again, we know that some of them aren't pure coins. And you mentioned Ethereum before. I'm sure you'll do it again. Mm-hmm. But it's a, it's a valid question, right? Just because yeah. crypt- just because blockchain's a thing, does that make Bitcoin a thing? Yeah, no, it's it's this is where all the trouble sort of starts because everyone just lumps it in together and it's just you know they're, they're very different things. Mm. Uh, one you know even even the difference between the two leading uh, cryptocurrencies, uh, you know, mm. uh, Ethereum and Bitcoin, are very different use cases for totally different purposes. Yeah, and then this kind of stuff that can be built on on some of these blockchains will will vary massively, just as the stuff that's been built with. Uh, you know, choose your favorite program. Java. You know, choose your mm-hmm. favorite programming language. I mean, yep. that can build yep. almost anything. Yep. Um, so, so yeah, I think I think the general the general view of it all is that mm-hmm. there's a future here. Therefore, get into it. It's all going to be great. I've said on the record multiple times that I mm-hmm. suspect 99 percent of these cryptocurrencies will go to zero. Yep. Um, at the same time, I do think that there are genuine network effects at play. So the way that this technology works is that the more nodes that you have on the system, i.e. the more people you have mining or staking yeah. or whatever technology is being used, the more robust that blockchain is, the safer mm. it is, the faster it is, the better it is. Um, the more certainty you can have if you're building applications on this, that this will be around in the future and there's enough of an economic incentive for people to continue doing that. Mm. So when when this first came into existence, it was like, well, anything could have sort of happened. <laughs> and anything could still happen yeah. from here. Yeah. But in twenty the end of 2021, there have been a few that have really just taken a significant share of that. They've got a very, very strong and potent network effect. So mm. for me... As a holder of, of uh, I've got a bit of Ethereum and a bit of Bitcoin. Mm. Um, to me, I feel as though while it's still very risky, it's not, it's not Shibu or you know Doge or something like this. You know, it's just like these these actually have mm. a much wider adoption, not just in people that are holding it and willing to accept that it, it's got value, but the people actually managing and maintaining the network, mm. the community of people that, that that actually allow this thing to sort of run. So, if you're a developer on Web Web 3.0, as it's called. Um, you're probably going to use uh, one of these major uh, again. This it's a whole rabbit hole we could go to Solana <laughs> and there's some other things as well. But you're you're very likely to use one of these ones, right. uh, even though some of them might have uh, better technological advantages. The classic example here might be something like with Betamax and VHS. You know, or any expert in 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 video will tell you that Beta was better. Mm. Um, but VHS won because it just got a it, yes. there was a wider adoption yes. of that. And there's there's very there's very potent feedback effects in play here. So if you've got a if everyone's got a VHS player, well, you're going to make the tapes in VHS format mm-hmm. because no one's got the other one. And that yeah. if all the tapes are being made in VHS format, well, I'm going to buy a VHS machine. Sort of. This is where That's I think some yep. some 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 of the the purists get carried away, saying, "Oh no, this this blockchain is better because it can process more per second and it can do this." And it's like that's yeah. all very true and good. <laughs> right. 
but no one's kind of using it. And I, I think that's why you mm. can sensibly make a and let me be clear here i'm i've I've, overall my portfolio (laughs) crypto is a very small component of it so i just want to make that that point but i feel as though it's at a it's at a point where where these ones have enough of a lead not to guarantee their success but Mm. to put them in a very strong position for eventual success yeah i think that's um i think that's a a really good point i think it's one of those uh, look uh, yeah uh, so i think i think sure i was right but i take your point as well mate it it is really 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 important to separate the two and work out why um even your point about network effects being bitcoin itself if enough people think it's worth it then that that becomes its own thing it's not successful it's not successful only because of blockchain blockchain as i've said on a number of occasions for a whole different applications is necessary but not sufficient right so the blockchain makes it possible does it make every crypto successful? No. No. Is Bitcoin likely to be one of the ones that survives and thrives if any do? Yes. Why? Because everyone thinks it's worth something. You know, there are there are a million precious metals out there. <laughs> Not literally a million, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, why is it gold? Well, it's kind of turned out that way. You know, yeah. why, why do we want gold jewellery? Is it because gold has some magical property? Well, I mean, kind of. Like, it's malleable and it's easy to work with. And there's probably some literal reasons why it makes sense to use that. And maybe Bitcoin's the same, maybe it's not. But at the end of the day, if we all decided we liked something else, if we all want aluminium rings or tin rings, then we do that too. And so there is something to the acceptance level. And just, you know, we talked about art before. You know, why does Blue Pole sell for X million dollars? Because people all agree that it's worth something. Yeah. Is it? Is it? Is it obviously intrinsically, fundamentally worth that? No, it's a bit of paint and some canvas and some wood and I assume that's what it's made of. I don't really know, as you can tell. Um, <laughs> you know, what, 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 makes, what makes 100 bucks worth of paint and some canvas worth $6 million? that people like what's being done and they all agree that it's worth something or at least enough people agree it's worth something to set a market price. And that, mm. that's that's important in itself. Um, let's go to a question from Damien. Hello, Sage, Fool and Simeon once more. Thanks, Damien. Just adding to the industry super ASX 300 option in the super question you had in the mailbag recently. I had used such a direct investment option in a legal focus super. I'm not a lawyer, but they had the best range of LACs at the time, he says. I was spoken to him about expanding the offering as no new ones of coming years. They have refused, and the trustees are not expected to do so in the near future. Disappointingly, have not given reasons. I put it down to laziness or inertia, as neither do they remove some of the very out-of-date LICs that barely trade and have questionable holdings. So, if it's for our protection, I'm dubious as to the effectiveness. Not to mention that I then use more individual stocks in my core than I would prefer, as I can't get the range of even mainstream ETFs. It's a shame the industry super goes out of its way to be cheapest and best, but it seems to act like a big old bank with old systems. No wonder people use SMSFs. He said, sorry, I wanted to add to last week's question, but it seems like a rant. <laughs> but I found it immensely frustrating. We love, Regards, a, good we love, we a, good love a good rant. We love a good rant. We prefer to prefer, honestly, we prefer to rant ourselves and have other people rant for us. We, you know, that's, <laughs> our, that's our job around here. But no, look, it's, it's a good point. I actually think it's, I think it's a lot of that, mate. I think there is a lot of yeah. just pure inertia. Um, and well, inertia, and there is a fiduciary responsibility, right? And so it's just easier to justify, literally, and maybe even emotionally, or, or you know, if, if you're pressed. Well, we've got this LOC; it's been around for 45 years, not going anywhere, so it's okay. Uh, as opposed to you know, genuinely, and it's and it's difficult, right? If you're a if you're a fiduciary and you have a, have to make a range of options available, on what basis do you make those options available? Is it just anything fine? So anything's fine? I don't know. Uh, mm. I'm not defending industry super or other supers, by the way, for the same thing. But I kind of get why they would be slow to change because they've got a responsibility to be a little bit conservative, I suppose is the right word, given they're responsible for managing and protecting the assets of Superfund members. Um, yes, there's, there's a direct investment option, but it's also a case of, well, yeah, but you know, we want to make sure you don't do anything completely stupid. That being said, I completely agree with your point, Damien, and my frustration is absolutely that. You can invest in any one of 
yeah, 300 ASX stocks on the ASX 300, but you can't buy an ETF that covers 50 or 100 of them. It's like, man, I'm not sure. You could probably put all, you know, most of your money into these two companies that were even a subset of that ETF. And it's like, well, that doesn't make any sense. I can invest more money in the individual companies than I can in the ETF itself. So I share your frustration. What I, what I hate is this idea that the stocks in the ASX 300 are much safer than stocks outside of the ASX 300. Yeah, right. It's probably generally true yes, statistically because there is yeah. so much rubbish at the small mm-hmm. end of the market. I but I've, I largely invest outside of the 300 and yeah. I would argue that I've got stocks in my portfolio that are far, far higher quality yes. and calibre and lower risk yes. than some of, the, some of the stocks even in the top 50. There's absolutely rubbish out there, you know, yeah. but they're big and, and they're, I guess it's a... Sh- uh, practical shortcut that, you know, you have to make mm, a dis- – mm. you know, it's, because uh, I'm sort of coming at it from a qualitative basis and they yeah. need to come at it from a more quali- a quantitative basis. So I, I think I that's, kind of that's get- exactly it, mate. That, that, that's yeah. exactly the difference is do, do, are some of the outside the 300 companies better than some inside? Yes. Yep. But if you had to pick uh, – if you picked 100 companies at random, mm. I would speculate that the larger the sample, the better the odds you lose money outside the 300 than inside. Yeah. Almost yeah. by definition. Not, not, not say there aren't better options there – but it's a smaller haystack and with more needles, even if the needles aren't necessarily as good as the other one. I'm yep. terribly, yep. horribly yep. mixed yep. up this metaphor. It does right, frustrate me though. Does yes, no, I totally well. agree with you. I agree with you. I, I, I've actually, I, <laughs> somewhat controversially for a company that picks stocks, um, I think too many people have self-managed super funds and I think even the direct investment option is probably not right for most people um, just to save them from themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, given, given this is retirement money, um, I would be very keen on, and again, I should be the opposite. Right? If I was, if I was t- talking my book about it, everyone should invest in SF and everyone should get my advice and I should help everyone, um, most people should let the experts do it or just buy a range of low-cost indices and make a very large amount of money rather than a stonkingly huge amount of money because mm. they're not risking the downside. I'm, I'm going to disagree on one point when you say let the experts do it. The experts yep. have a pretty bad record. I, you know, there's there's some woeful performers out there of quote-unquote so-called experts as well, so which also makes it hard. I mean, look at look mm. what some of the stuff that the Royal Commission uncovered. Look at the performance of some of the biggest fee uh, managed funds that are out there. Mm. You know, these are the experts and, you know, the, the geniuses over at AMP Funds Management have not covered <laughs> themselves in glory. Yeah. I can say that as an objective fact because it's yeah. a historical track record. Or that's there and a lot of these funds so so I, I totally hear what you're saying but um, for that purpose I think the, the, the low cost index ETF is, is far far superior than one that someone's going to charge yes. you ridiculous amount of fees to, to just hug the index anyway and, and likely underperform it after fees so, so to be clear, when I was talking about the experts, I meant the index running the experts running the funds. Oh, okay, experts. Okay. No, you, you're right. You're right to highlight it because I didn't. I wasn't clear. Um, I think you're absolutely dead right. I completely agree. That being said, the the average investor and the average fund manager probably aren't that far apart either. It, by definition, it's the extremes. And I think mm. that what, when I say most people, I don't mean everybody, and I don't mean well, probably most people listening to this podcast should should consider doing it themselves because they're listening enough and they're getting yeah, they're enough money to do it. Yeah, right? For yeah, sure. Yeah. But but if I think about you know, if, if my mother or, or sister, um, who are both lovely people and super smart, super capable in their own expert areas, neither of them are stock pickers, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't be comfortable with, with a financial advisor saying to them, "Hey, you should have an SMSF. Like, yeah, let me help you pick stocks." I'm like, you know what? Mm. It's not their thing. Um, I think, I think they, those, they would be better with a very simple. Now, I help them with their investments, by the way, so a different context, but with a very low cost index ETF, as you say, mate, inside a low cost super fund. And let that compound away at the market rate for, you know, in my sister's case, lots of time left. In my other's case, she's already retired. But in either way, you know, hopefully they're both investing for more than 20 years each. Um, let that compound away in a, in a low-cost super fund with a low-cost index inside it. Job done. Rather, rather, than trying to, rather than trying to play silly buggers picking stocks, that's absolutely the right thing to do. Yep, 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 yep. 
Uh, but again, I'm not saying people shouldn't do it if they feel like they're ready for it, just most people shouldn't be encouraged to because most people aren't appropriate. Mm. And, and Buffett mm. himself said that he thinks, I think it was 95% of people should be, you know, in a SP500 ETF index fund. I think it's exactly the right, the right approach. Yep. Mate, one from Gaz. G'day, Gaz. He says, hi, Scott and Ram. Love the podcast and listen to it every week. Thank you, mate. Also, subscribe to Share Advisor and Extreme Opportunities, and I'm waitlisted for Strawman. He says in brackets, please open up again, Ram. Yeah, mate. Come <laughs> on. Well. Help, help us out. <laughs> My question for the pod is this. One podcast insight I've taken to heart is Scott's uber logical take. Gee, I like you, like you guys. Scott's uber logical take on being fully invested all the time. I get it, and I'm in brackets mostly convinced. But here's a new challenge to it. When discussing ETFs recently, you both agreed that even straight up broad-based ETFs will pull back 30% or more from time to time. Also, the consensus view seems to be that interest rates are going up with inflationary pressures. Therefore, he says, doesn't it make sense to leave a proportion of your investable wealth in an offset account, effectively earning, say, 3 to 5% per annum tax-free, which remains investable in the event of a decent drop in the stock market? I know you can argue behaviourally you might not pull the trigger. We will. But how about a pre-planned percentage buy-in at certain percentage drops from 52-week highs? A long question, I know, he says. Thanks for considering for the podcast. Best wishes. And that's from Gaz. He's picked us, mate. But isn't he, isn't he right? Isn't he fair to say, look, I'll leave some money in an offset and then when the market drops, then I'll invest the money? Yeah. I, I don't find that... That too uh, onerous, actually. I, I I can get behind that. So if you've got a if you've got a mortgage there, um, mm. then yeah, yeah. That, that's a guaranteed return paying that thing off. So mm-hmm. I everyone's different. Um, but I as a as a person, I, I had some friends actually. They've they've got a house. They've got a mm-hmm. pretty big mortgage against it. They bought an investment property a couple of years ago as well. And they're right, just right. like I, my argument at the time was actually paying down that mortgage is a guaranteed return, not mm. just in terms of the interest and stuff that that you will save, yeah. but in like there'll come a point in time where you're just like you're not paying interest <laughs> or principal anymore. I mean yeah. that is yeah. that that is a massive boost to your financial budget. That then mm. once you've got disposable income, you can then look to invest elsewhere. Mm. Um, it's not that what they've done is wrong per se, but it just again makes it in a much more uh, a sensitive position should should things not not go great. Um, it'll be absolutely the right thing to do if property keeps doubling it, you know, every three years. Then <laughs> that is definitely the right thing to do. Leverage yourself <laughs> to the eyeball. But yeah, yeah. Um, so I actually so in, in the case of Gaz, it's sort of like you know you you got to you got to draw two lines here. Mm. One is what's the market going to return versus what am I going to get by leaving it in the offset account? And yeah. and depending on the shape of those lines, that'll tell you exactly what to do. We just don't know what, what the shape is going to be. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be, it's going to depend on how conservative you want to be. And there's no, it's a, it's a personal decision. There's no one right answer. But I would say for someone wanting to be a little bit more on the conservative side, that having, having a little chunk there in an offset account or even just paying the damn thing down mm-hmm. is actually, is, is certainly not going to be money badly spent. Yep, I agree. Um, I, I, I will repeat myself a little bit because it's important and, and Gaz mentioned our previous comments. So I will, again, for people listening for the first time or who maybe haven't completely internalised this, there is a mathematical and a, and a, and a behavioural, real world, you know, um, Yogi Berra's quote about in theory and practice. In theory, there's no difference between theory and practice, but in practice there is, which are my favourite of her quotes. Um, I, you know, I, I still think, Gaz, that the money in the offset, the market does fall 30% every now and again. Uh, but given the numbers I just mentioned with the Berkshire Hathaway AGM or, or annual letter, there are also periods where the, the market went up and up and up and up and up, and by the time it fell, uh, you actually had less money after the fact. And so just, and again, I'm not saying that's wrong. So for example, that last two years, uh, 2019, the market was up 31.5%. 2020, the market was up 18.4%. This is the S&P. 
at the moment, uh, when we're recording this, it's likely up another 20% in 2021. Now, Whoa, it did fall 30%. What a run. Yeah, now it did fall 30% in the middle of that, right? So if you had the money, you probably were okay. But <laughs> depending on what you put in when and how much it had gone up since, that 35% gain in – or 31% gain, sorry, in 2019, um, again, because they work on different bases, you know, maybe you got lucky, maybe you invested at the very bottom of COVID at the very, very bottom. Uh, but if you'd invested on the way down at a 5%, then a 10%, then a 20% fall, then a 30% fall, you actually didn't make back the gain you forfeited in the previous year. Now, if you bought everything at a 38% fall, if you happen to know that's as far as it was going to go, or it was going to go that far, then you might have made some money. But we're kind of talking about the extremes of, of probabilities here that, you know, you, you just made enough money elsewhere. You just waited long enough, but not too long because the market already started coming back by then. So, you know, 99 point something percent of 2020, you would have lost money by waiting. Now, that's a single example. It's also a good example, though, because it's the biggest fall we've had in forever, um, at least in, in, a single, in a single period of time. GFC was probably... I don't think GFC was worse. Was it percentage terms? Was it worse? Might have been. Anyway. So, yeah. Anyway. Um, so, look, you know, mathematically, I, I still think you best simply be invested. I, I just... I, I don't see examples where over time... Are there single examples? Yes. Is it likely over time? I don't think so. I think you're more likely to make money being invested than waiting for the pullback. Um, as long as you find good companies to buy or indices to buy that are worth buying. So, you know, but dollar cost averaging again and that kind of idea, every time you wait and then wait and then wait and then wait, you are you're needing a bigger and bigger pullback to even get even, let alone get ahead. And you miss out dividends all the way through all that kind of stuff. Um, so I, I still think purely mathematically, the odds are pretty good that being fully invested is better than not. That being said, as Ram said, if you just simply feel comfortable doing it, you want to have the opportunity to do that and it makes you feel better and the money in the offset is earning you something and it's tax-free, as you say, um, and you get the opportunity to put some money to work when the market falls, which means you're at least benefiting from that fall even while the rest of your portfolio was hurting, then great. I think it's a, I think it's a perfectly fine thing to do. And for many people, maybe for most people, it's exactly the right thing to do. Uh, I, 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 my reasonably high conviction is mathematically, you better to be invested all the time. But that's that you know depends on, uh, yeah, have you got the companies to buy? Can you find them? Uh, are you going to get a decent enough return? All that stuff is, is hard to do at the same time. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. Let's go to uh, Emily, mate. Oh, female question. Thank you, Emily. Hi, Scott Andrew. She says, firstly, I want to say thank you for making investment education accessible to young women. Yeah, pleasure. I'm 26 years old. Well, Emily, see, I'm glad you're female. I'm glad you're asking us a question. You know I hate young people, uh, mostly just because I can't be young anymore, so I, I'm just generally envious. I'm 26 old, years old, she said, and I'm torn between wanting to invest a lot of money for the long term and needing to save for a house deposit. I, I feel you. Um, I have a young bloke who's also 26 so in exactly the same situation. Generally, the advice I've heard is, if you want to save for a house deposit, don't invest it. But is this really the case, she asks? I really like investing and I would hate to have to stop. So far, my investments have grown and I see this as a quicker way to save up for the full amount I need. And timing is not important to me. So if the market goes down when I'm looking to buy, I'd simply wait for it to go back up. Kind regards, Emily. I love this question for all the reasons you would expect, Ram. It's similar to the question you've already asked, um, Red right. Rich's question about saving for a house deposit. Yeah. Um, but I, the, the one that stuck out to me from Emily, I, well, firstly, I want to have Emily on the podcast because we love our female listeners, particularly um, not enough women are investing in Emily. So good on you. And please tell your friends, get them, get them started as well. Um, but I, I just, I thought what stuck out was she's heard advice. If you want to save for a house deposit, don't invest it. And I don't know that I've heard that advice a lot, mate. So I'm kind of disappointed that it's, it's, a, it's a reasonably prominent thing. Um, Man, like even even I mean, you know, I have our views on house prices in the future, but even allowing for that, 
um, to have not invested that money to at least try and get some sort of compound gain while house prices were also rising strikes me as a, I, I can't imagine being in cash rather than shares during that period of time, particularly with Emily's situation where she doesn't have a, a drop-dead date. Mm. I guess it comes back to it, it does make sense if, you know, this you're saving for a deposit and you're close to it and you're looking at buying in the next 12 to 18 months, kind of, as, yeah. as we spoke yes, yes, of before. Yes, yeah. So yeah. in that, that one context, it... it it, I agree. Yep. In any other context, I totally disagree. It's weird, uh, isn't it? but particularly with interest rates at zero. I mean, why well, can pop it into a, a high, you know, quote unquote high interest savings account yeah, and, right. and go backwards at, in real at terms? Zero point one percent. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I'm actually losing money. You know, once once you factor in inflation, it's, yeah, it's like, what yeah. an awful. Yeah, you you got to. And then Emily's in a great situation because she doesn't have a, a, a exact date, and right. she's she's got the ability to do it. So absolutely, I would say mm-hmm. keep it invested. Um, yep. And then, and, and t- until you've got enough to, to buy what you want, which which is a house. Yeah, yeah. It's it seems pretty straightforward, doesn't it? You know what I would say is <laughs> oh, a little tangent oh, here, but here we go. I would, and this is this is my situation, but I would say if we lived in a rational uh, country. <laughs> And you could get long-term <laughs> leases. I would actually say just keep investing it in the market and pay rent your whole life. Exactly. The maths works out really, really, really favourable. Yeah, it does. Um, as I can tell you from bitter experience, it doesn't work because you can't get long-term leases and you get kicked out every 12 months and it really sucks and you've got no security yeah. and all the added costs that go along with that. So, Other than um, that. Other than that, uh, <laughs> you know, it's yeah. it, it, it's this idea. It's a, it's a real religion in this country. Yeah, you know, you've, got, you've got to have yep. a house. And, and it actually... Yep. Yeah, kind of do really because of because of the crappy system that we've got. Anyway. I, that always that always strikes yeah, attention on a tangent, but it always strikes me when people say, "Oh, well, yeah, it's terrible. People can't afford a house, or you know, home ownership is up or down." As if there's a there's an absolute need for it to be up or be a certain mm. number, and and mm. people should be able to afford a house if they want one. But mm. to your point, it's like the, the 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 general assumption in the media and elsewhere that well, of course, everyone should want a house. So of course, higher house ownership is good, and of course, lower house ownership is bad. So more people might want to be mobile or they might like the idea of being in different parts of town, different parts, stages of life or whatever else they want. Now, as you say, there are drawbacks with... Like, like security tenure, security but, of shelter is what yeah. it is. is it, right, you know, right, right. It's not, exactly. uh, not whether or not you own it doesn't matter. It's correct, security correct. of shelter. That's the main thing. Yeah. You know, I was saying to a friend the other day, I saw, they were talking, we had my, my sort of favourite sort of go-to barbecue discussion, <laughs> but talking <laughs> about uh, property versus Your shares. Friends. And often comes up and they'll go... Oh, but at least you, you can't live in a portfolio. You can live in a house. And that's, that's actually a really good point. It's like, it I totally is. get that because it's got that utility. Yep. Yep. However, I would say in retort to that, it's just like, all right, sell your house. Uh, and and you know, oh, you've made a heap of money in property, sell it. It's like, well, but then I've got to have anywhere to live. It's like, exactly, <laughs> right? So it's kind of like, yeah. or, or maybe maybe you only need $10,000 for something. Okay, well, maybe just sell the garage or the bathroom. Oh, oh, you can't do that. So it's kind of like there's there's this wonderful thing with property and that you get to live in it as well as having an appreciating asset. Mm. But the irony is, is that to realise any gains that you may make, you have to sell it. And unless you want to live on the street, you've probably got to buy another house. So it only kind of works if you're downsizing or moving yes. to a much cheaper market. Correct. Excluding those two scenarios, it's actually all funny money. It, it makes mm-hmm. it makes no difference. So you can the market can be down, the market can be up. If I'm selling and buying in the same market, it makes yep. no difference whatsoever. So it's it's yep. not it's not entirely equivalent. I just I'll just I'll make that distinction. Yes, I agree. Emily, so I would yeah, we can't give you a personal advice. Generally speaking, I see no reason why you wouldn't want to invest. Uh, while you're saving for a house, um, given all of the things you talked about about how long you've got to wait and all that kind of stuff, I just I don't I can't even really I mean 
maybe they're worried about people losing money and then selling out at the wrong time and then therefore damaging their deposit. Like there are there are behavioural reasons why some people shouldn't do it because you know at least if you save it and it's in a bank, it's not going anywhere. And you know, yes, there were, there were yes, people I saw people true. on ABC business website last week, I think it was. Well, again, weeks ago now uh, because we got out late, but they had literally lost their entire housing deposit, I think buying crypto or something. And it was kind of one of those things. And, you know, it's an easy headline because crypto is the big bad guy. And, you know, I'm not a massive fan, but it's not also the devil incarnate. Uh, but in any case, they, they had invested in air quotes in something for their, you know, to build their house deposit in, in dodgy assets, probably sold out at the wrong time or bought the wrong asset in the first place. So, you know, buy, hmm. shares are riskier than cash. Let's be really, really, really clear. For, for fundamental and behavioural reasons, shares will be riskier than cash. And it's really important that we say that because if you're out there and you don't have experience investing, I don't want you to take your $100,000 house deposit and whack it in the market, buy shares in Dodgy Brothers Incorporated, that falls in half, you sell the shares, say, see, I told you that was a stupid idea, and you put yourself back three years in your house deposit, right? <coughs> so there are, there are reasons why, and really good reasons why, shares are riskier than, than cash for a whole lot of those reasons. And Much you need riskier. to know that. You need to know mm. that, right? Now, we think it's worth doing, and we think it's worth doing well but a bit like the ETFs and the super thing that I said before, some people shouldn't invest even their house deposit because if they haven't got the discipline or the know-how and the uh, emotional stability. Frankly, I don't mean that in a critical way, a pejorative way. But if you're not if you're not cut out to look at your your portfolio falling thirty eight percent as it did in February March twenty twenty, and, and be be able to hold those shares and let it recover, then you're in all sorts of trouble. Now, Emily, it sounds like you're not that person. So I'm absolutely not talking to you, as it turns out. But for others listening, please don't, you know, everything we say is always general. You have to consider how your circumstances and your emotional, mental, experiential circumstances apply as much as your financial circumstances. Can I add one more wrinkle to this? Please do. I'm just on the sort of shares v property kind of Yeah, angle. yeah, go for it. So I've, had, I've, had, I've talked to other people who've sort of said, yeah, I'm, I'm doing this, you know, I'm, I'm saving up some money and putting it in the market and the, yeah. the, the end game here is, is a house deposit. And then they'll say, well, it makes a lot of sense. And they'll say, mm-hmm. oh, I hope there's a, I hope there's a house price crash because <laughs> because then I could buy it at a, at a much cheaper price. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's true. But I would say that um, in, any, in any situation when we suffer a serious housing downturn in the mm-hmm. residential property market in Australia, mm-hmm. the share market is going to get whacked. Like yeah, they, totally. they are going to be very highly correlated in that yes, sense. Yes. So while while your while a house might be cheaper, <laughs> you might find yeah. that your deposit has shrunk a lot too. So That's it's they, they are they are very much tied together for just for sentiment reasons and the yeah. wealth effect beyond a whole bunch of other technical reasons that are really important as well. But that's it's just I don't know. I know Emily's that's outside of the scope of her question. But I would I would mention that if if you are in that scenario hoping that housing crashes so you can buy a cheaper house, yes. well having money in the market is not going to help you in that scenario. And cash Cash is king in that scenario because the great cash thing about cash, king. the yeah. only great thing about cash beyond <laughs> its, its ability to yeah. be spent yeah. Yeah. Um, is that it will not go down. It yes. will not go down. And it's guaranteed, if you've got, got $10,000 in your savings account, mm-hmm. even if you're getting no interest, take away a few fees, you've still basically got $10,000 there whenever you yeah. need it. And yeah. that's there's, there's value in that. A little wrinkle, by the way, on inflation because the US inflation is 7%. So your $10,000 mm-hmm. is only worth $9,300 if you're in the US today. Oh, true, true. Um, and it, it, it doesn't go away, but the things you can buy for ten grand now cost ten thousand seven hundred dollars. Yep, or you know the, the equivalent of reduction. So um, it doesn't go down, and that, that's where I will say I think everyone should invest in, in whatever way they can, even if it's just index fund, leave it alone. If 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 you're someone, by the way, this is this is a, this is a shares podcast, right? It's an investing podcast, a money podcast. But Vanguard have their ETFs, which I love, exchange traded funds. If you're someone who even wants to see the price of that change daily. 
Vanguard also have some off-market managed funds, which are the old school ones, where you don't have to see the market moving up and down every day. And so, you know, if, if you're somebody who's like, you know what, I know, I know I need to invest, but I just can't stand the fact that my portfolio goes up and down by a percent a day or 5% a week or sometimes 30% in a month. If you can't, and you're seeing it every single day and it's driving you nuts, there's a whole lot of managed funds off market and they can do low cost index-based managed funds. Um, there, are, there are active managed funds as well, by the way, but, you know, like go and do that. Go and grab a Vanguard managed fund off market if you need to. Um, but do something that builds your wealth and find a way that works for you. Uh, again, financially, but more importantly, in my my view, at least in terms of managing it emotionally, mentally, um, there, there are a whole lot of options for people who just need less volatility in their lives. Um, I don't want you to miss out and say, well, I need to stay in cash, therefore, because inflation will kill you at the same time. Yep. Mate, some um, question from another question from Gaz, actually. A couple of questions, a couple of questions apart. Another question for the pod, please, says Gaz. I love the podcast. It's my only weekly must-listen. Thank you, mate. A really simple question. I feel I should understand, but I don't. I understand the price of an ETF on the ASX is determined by buyers and sellers, as for a stock. But how is the value determined? How would you know whether an ETF was fundamentally good value? Is there a way of considering its PE, its price-earnings ratio, or its likely growth? For example, yes, hydrogen is likely to be a massive market in the future, but how does this link to the value of the hydrogen ETF, for example? And how would you know if the growth is in the current price? Best wishes from Gaz. You have a first stab at that, mate? Yeah, so it's it's possible, but it's a hell of a lot of work. I mean, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's a, it really so is. an index or an ETF, it's just it's a it's a, a conglomerate of yeah. you know potentially thousands of different stocks. Yeah, yeah. So what you've got to do is answer that question for each individual stock, and then add that all together, accounting mm-hmm. for the various weightings that they have within that. Yeah. So you could find out what the average earnings were. Um, across all of that and divide you, you could work out a PE it'd be very hard to do right, right. Uh, or you could probably just use the, the index PE as a proxy uh, in that yeah. instance which, which yeah. you might find uh, calculated elsewhere for you but uh, why would you uh, would be yeah. my <laughs> would be my point go on no, that sounds really harsh to Gaz I'm not, he actually asked a really intelligent yeah, question because he's, he's, yeah. he's got an eye on value and I, and I really get it but I think when you're when you're uh, prosecuting an ETF kind of yep. strategy, it is yep. really about sort of saying, look, the market might be overtly expensive or this segment of the market might be overtly expensive or cheap at this particular point in time. Mm. But as a whole, if I believe this industry slash sector does well over time, I'm likely to do well as well. And um, it, particularly if you're contributing to it on a regular basis, as I think mm. as was from the previous question, um, it's going to become less and less material mm. over time. Mm. So, yeah, it's just... It's very important, Gaz, when uh, on an individual stock, it's just too hard on an ETF basis and, and, and probably unnecessary for what you're trying to achieve with those instruments. Mm. Mm. Can I disagree entirely? Okay. <laughs> um, let me, so, so I, I, I kind of agree. So there's, there's, there's a couple of layers here, Gaz. So I'm going to get to the, my disagreement with Ram in a second. Um, but let me start with the first thing first, which is the ETF itself is only the agglomeration of the companies that it is made up of, Right. And so let's, let's take an ETF called Motley Fool Money ETF made up of Rampage's Rockets and Scott's Sleds. I'm going to forget those names, so I'm only later around. Okay. Um, and you're buying the, and the ETF is, in theory, $100 per unit, right? And it's made up equally of Rams Rockets and Scott's Sleds. So there's two, 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 two ETFs, half, or two stocks, half each. Now, if you think that Scott's Sleds is horribly, horribly, horribly overvalued, because I'm making these horse-drawn sleds when the rest of the world's already driving cars, um, and my 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 sled business has a share price of fifty dollars a share. 
but the business is going to go broke in three years' time, right? And you look at Rams Rockers, like, oh man, that's a great business. I love Rams Rockers. I'm such a fan of transport. It's a transport ETF in this case. Uh, and, I, and I think rockets are the future. Uh, Elon's done his thing and Rams going to do a, a, a SpaceX, we'll call it Ramex. Uh, uh-huh. And it, it's, it's going to be this great business. And I think the shares are worth uh, 50% more than the current price. Now, if you do the maths on that, 50% more on Rams, mine goes broke, you actually still lose money. So my concern generally, mate, as I've said before, Ram, I know you disagree slightly on this one, is at a thematic ETF level, just knowing that transportation is going to be huge isn't enough to decide whether or not the ETF is fair value because of the value it's made up of. Well, let me take another example. Back in 1999, the NASDAQ ETF, right? Tech is the future. Uh, E-commerce was going to be all the rage. Technology companies are going to change the world. Those things were all true and you were right about the theme. And yet the, the NASDAQ fell 80%. And so you bought the ETF, you're right about the theme, it still got absolutely hosed buying the shares because you simply paid too much because the market was way too fluffy, way too volatile, way too over the top, right? Frothy, I mean, not fluffy. Fluffy's a whole different idea. It was frothy. Uh, market would be fluffy too. I'm happy with fluffy markets. Um, and so to that extent, if you're buying a thematic or a sector specific, like a hydrogen ETF, then not only do you have... So the answer to the question, how do you know? You need to look at the component parts. And I would never, almost never, I'll say, I might say never, never is a long time, uh, almost never buy an ETF that was thematic without really understanding the, the component parts of it because I simply don't know if I'm overpaying. And I don't know the future of that business. So saying hydrogen's the future, therefore a hydrogen ETF is worth buying, I think is a dangerous assumption. You may be dead right. You may be entirely right. Or it could be a whole lot of hydrogen hopefuls that never make any money. It's like, like biotech. You know, if you bought buy, are biotech companies the future? Yes. Are they all going to make money? No. Are enough of them going to make money for the ETF to work out? I don't know. And so if you kind of can't answer those questions confidently, I really, really wouldn't touch it. So that would be my general view. But to, to answer your question specifically, the value is, is assessed at a company-by-company company level and rolled up from there. So if you really wanted to know, and to Ram's point, at a, at a broad index level, I wouldn't bother doing it, by the way, so, which is the second part of my question, my answer. Uh, but the answer would be, understand the underlying value of the businesses you're buying uh, and add those together, conceptually, if not literally, and see if you're paying a fair price. Mm. For, for a broad index-based ETF, um, you can get the average ASX 200 PE, for example, if you wanted to. And if you're buying an ASX 200 ETF, you could be reasonably assured it's the same thing. Um, so it's possible to do. But again, to Ram's point, if you're at all cost averaging into a, into a broad-based market ETF at low fees, I, I wouldn't personally bother either. I just I'd buy regularly into that ETF. In fact, I am. I've, I mentioned for my son, who's not listening to this podcast, uh, we're putting a small amount of money away every month. We're using Pearl of the brokerage and we're literally just effectively dollar cost averaging into two ETFs. Partly because I wanted to try the brokerage out and see what it was like and partly because it made sense for us to just have this separate bit of money for him at some future point when he turns whatever age we decide to tell him about it. Um, but yeah, we do, we're doing that and that's just dollar cost averaging into two ETFs. That's exactly what we're doing and I'm not worried about the, the, the price of the markets because it'll, it'll work itself out in time. Um, last point quickly because it, it was actually a really good question guys with a whole lot of different parts. When you say the, the price is determined by the buyers and sellers, it's actually not. <laughs> So the thing with ETFs is there is a thing called a market maker. And so if, if Ram and I had Ram's rockets and Scott's sleds and, the, and, and we had this ETF called the Motley Fool Money Transport ETF, um, we, the, the ETF, the way it would be valued is the, the ETF market maker would say, okay, well, Scott's, rock, Scott's sleds is worth X dollars and Ram's rockets is worth Y dollars. Together, they're worth $100. And so they would make sure that every share was sold at that fair value, the sum total of the value of the underlying assets. I hope I've explained that well enough. So basically, uh, again, in these two examples, if, if the businesses are selling, not not worth, but selling for $50 per share each on the market, I shouldn't use 50, I shouldn't, yeah, get the idea. Uh, and the ETF, therefore, the net asset value of the ETF was $100. 
every share bought and sold should be bought or sold at that net asset value as determined by the market maker. That's their job. And so actually a, a surplus of buyers and sellers shouldn't change the price at all. It should trade for the net total of what that ETF is worth based on the prices of the assets. And that's why I said you have to go to below that to work out whether the price of the assets is actually a fair value in the first place because all the market maker does is say, well, I've had it all together. Here's what it's worth. Here's the price we're going to buy and sell at. That's all they have to do. And so when the NASDAQ ETF, for example, trades at 2% higher today than it did yesterday, I own units in that for the record, um, it'll be because the NASDAQ went up 2% overnight. And that's, that's the, that the job of the market maker is to make sure it reflects that, that ongoing value. Have I covered that okay, Rem? What, what have I screwed up? I'm just waiting to hear the part where you said because you start you started that all by saying you totally disagree. I I, I missed the part where <laughs> well you were saying we, you were saying you wouldn't bother you wouldn't bother working out the value of those things that are inside it. Oh, and my well, my point is for the hydrogen ETF or for any thematic ETF where it takes hydrogen or lithium or electric vehicles or Bitcoin or cryptos or uh, cybersecurity or whatever, mm. I would I, I would not buy one of those ETFs unless I had a strong view as to what the underlying businesses were worth because I don't know whether the market is overvaluing those individual businesses. If I had to buy them all individually, would I buy them all separately? If the answer is yes, then go for it. If you're like, well, I like that of cybersecurity, but man, that company that makes up half the indexes is trading on a million times earnings, then I'm probably going to say, well, the ETF's probably overvalued, so I wouldn't buy it. So I, I think at a thematic level, um, mm. you said I wouldn't worry about it. I absolutely would worry about it. I would not personally, and this is my view, I wouldn't personally buy an ETF that was thematic unless I had a really strong view of the value of the underlying companies. Otherwise, oh, okay. if you buy the NASDAQ ETF in 1999, it's a sim simple, easy example. I don't think it existed back then. Um, but if you did, you lost $80 for every $100 you invested because it simply, you know, was it worth it over time to dollar cost average into? I guess maybe, probably. But if I if I looked at that then and gone, oh man, there's so much bubbly, frothy stuff in the NASDAQ right now in tech stocks. Do I really want to buy the tech ETF now? I could say, who cares? I'll just buy the ETF. And that would have been okay, but I would have lost a lot of money. So I would always, I would always, in a thematic ETF, check for a, for a broad-based market ETF. I'd never check. I'm, I'm buying units regularly in okay. the small ordinaries yep. and the U.S. total market. They're both Vanguard products for full disclosure. Um, I, I, I'm buying shares regularly in both of those when my savings hit a certain amount of money. I have no, I've never even looked at the valuation of those two markets. I've just gone, you know what? That's fine. Just, just, just buy them. But I wouldn't buy shares in the cybersecurity ETF or a hydrogen ETF or a Aviation ETF or an not, but it doesn't matter what the segment is. Without doing the work on the underlying companies, or at least the vast bulk. Yeah, that's of the, because that's because your view, make up the max. Your view is is that the companies in those broad based indexes will, on average, perform better over time. Yes, and right. and so yeah, so so yes. I, would, I yes. so just to clarify my thinking, yeah, I wouldn't bother doing the exercise because you'd be actually doing a deep dive analysis on potentially hundreds and hundreds of companies. It'd be Correct. really, Correct. really, really yes. hard yeah. to do. Yeah. But yes, you yeah. do need to have a view that the, the those those companies on whole belong to an industry with favourable economics and and will be better off in the future. Yeah. So and and so the the, the thing you need to tease apart there is is hydrogen going to be a, a big thing in the future? Yeah, probably. Um, yeah. Are the companies that largely operate in that space also going to be more profitable? So they're, they're two different yes. questions. And yes. yes, you have to have a confident view uh, one way or uh, or the other. I'm just saying mm -hmm. I wouldn't I wouldn't do. Put it this way: if you if you're prepared, and I take my hat off to you if you were guys prepared to do the work on that <laughs> yeah. then i would actually yeah. say yeah. well just yeah. just put your own port if you've done that much work put your own that's put your exactly. own portfolio together that's exactly my point totally we just put, pick the best ones out of all of that and you'll probably yeah. do even better than the etf yeah i think i will go as far as say i think the existence of thematic etfs is not beneficial to investors and probably detrimental because it encourages people to skip the middle step i think i think i think tesla's going to be big therefore i'll buy a lithium etf is what too many people do. 
And maybe it makes a fortune for them, for, what I, for all I know, uh, but it encourages people to skip the middle steps. And I think that's a shame. Yeah, but you're picking on some pretty crappy industries here. Yeah, um, totally. There might totally. be other industries where it's just sort of like, you know, if I had a thematic ETF that was yep. based very much on, I don't know, enterprise software solutions, which yep. is just a f- wonderful business, yep. or payment payment businesses, you know, it's like, well, now that's an ETF I could get behind because the, the economics of that industry and the, the major players in that industry are uber profitable. So it's sort of, I hear your point, um, and there'll be some industries that that uh, that yep. fit that, but there'll be others that, that are outside of that too. So to as, your, as always, about, the answer is it depends. Yeah. To your point about the payment industry though, what if it was made up of Afterpay, Zip, Sezzle, Tyro, uh, and the other 14,000 buy now, pay later products? Well, that's different. Yeah. Yeah. That's almost my point, right? When you say uh, a payments, and I'm not saying you're wrong, but if you said a payments ETF, my, my point is, to, you know, you would say a payments ETF, that's something I get behind. Yeah, I'd buy that. Well, and, and also- might, And if one yeah. existed tomorrow on, on the ASX- Alison, I'm not saying again. I'm being I'm being absolutely hypothetical and a bit a bit naughty, but um, you know, a, a group might a group might simply just say, well, Rams said a payment ETF would be great. There's a payment ETF over there. I should just buy it. It's like, well, oh God, no, no, don't, it would, don't it do that. Just there. no, no, no. Look, look at what's in the. You'll you'll be yeah. able to download the the PDF and it'll tell you the top ten holdings. It'll give you seventy percent spread. Yeah, definitely have a look. Make sure that what their definition of exposure is is, is matching up with what you're you're wanting to achieve. Yeah, sorry, man. I mean I mean deliberately a bit mischievous, but I just, I just want to make the point that you know, to my to my view, it, it matters, right? And and your your what you assume would be in that ETF is that you're exactly right. And that's absolutely take your point. Enterprise yep. software has been fantastic. Um, oh man, I want to I want to go on a different tangent, but I'm not going to because I can't because we're out of time. But, well, uh, out of listen time. next week. Listen next week. I will happily tangent away. Um, remind me, Ram, when we get there. It's going to be a long time from here because we're recording early. But remind me to talk about why tech companies shouldn't be worth more than everything else. Why they should be worth more. Why they shouldn't be worth more than anything else. Oh, interesting. How's that controversial? Okay, I'm definitely going to remind you about that next week on Motley Fool Money. Ram will tell me why I'm wrong. I think and I know what you're going to say. Oh, okay. We'll see. We'll see if he knows. We'll see if he knows. Until then, thanks for listening. Full on. Cheers. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under financial services licence 400691. Listener.